0: Putting this new lift in, one of our operations managers here had an excellent idea that we go ahead and name it after two individuals that were a big part of the Cascade family back in the 90s, Jared Law and Justin Lentz. They lost their lives in an avalanche out in Colorado in 2014. Their families and their friends are longtime skiers here at Cascade, and we just thought it would be a really good tribute to those two individuals. No other way to say it, they helped develop the ski culture that resides at Cascade.
1: Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Back to Wisco today, one of the strongholds of Midwest skiing. Real quick, first, I need a favor. If you are new here, maybe you wandered in from iTunes or Spotify, you have to understand something. The podcast is just a small part of the storm. In fact, the podcast is just a small part of the podcast. Go to StormSkiing.com and you will find a companion article for this podcast, which includes maps, charts, historical tidbits, and tons of additional context on our conversation. There, you can sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter to make sure you get future podcasts in your inbox the moment they're live. But the newsletter includes way more than the podcast. I am breaking down the world of lift to skiing with a minimum of 100 articles every single year in the Storm Skiing Newsletter. So, please join us there. Also, give me a follow on Twitter, Instagram, or threads at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Cascade Mountain, a quick word from my partner, Snowbound Expo. Winter is just around the corner, and that can only mean one thing. It is time to gear up for the biggest snow sports event of the year. That's right. Snowbound Expo is just weeks away and I'm stoked to say that I am partnering with this huge event for the second consecutive year. The Expo kicks off the 2023 to 24 ski season for families, skiers and riders and takes place November 3rd to 5th, 2023 at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. The lineup for this year is pretty epic and includes Sean White, Dan Egan, Lindsay Jacobellis, Brenna Huckabee, Doug Lewis, Julia Kern, Ted Liggety, and many more. There are more than 150 brands and resorts that you can shop from, including major ski and snowboard brands, accessories, apparel, and tech, all for the season ahead. The full list is on the website snowboundexpo.com backslash exhibitors. You will see free entertainment for the family all weekend, including the Mega Indoor Slope, Skate to Ski with Rollerblades, Nordic Skiing at the Cross Country Experience, Selfies and Swag, Apres Ski, and much more. We've got a free ticket code for you for Snowbound Expo. Redeem yours now by using code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at the ticket checkout at SnowboundExpo.com. Episode 148, Matt Voss, General Manager of Cascade Mountain, Wisconsin. If you ever get it into your head to ski your way across the United States, you could do a lot worse than following Interstate 90. Set out from the east, from Boston, and you'll pass within 10 miles of more than two dozen ski areas as you work your way west through Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. Start in the west from Seattle, and you'll pass the Summit of Snoqualmie within the hour, then Silver Mountain on your way through Idaho, and Lookout Pass as you cross the high alpine border into Montana. Then you could hit a dozen more ski areas as you work your way into Wyoming and east across South Dakota and Minnesota. Whether you start east or west, you'll hit one mandatory stop as you follow America's longest road across Wisconsin. Rising on a bluff hard against the interstate 38 miles north of madison is one of the midwest's most complete ski areas a 450 footer with a pair of high speed lifts and big expansion plans run by a family that understands and is committed to the importance of independent skiing that ski area is cascade mountain we're going to tell you all about it today let's go My guest today is the general manager of Cascade Mountain, Wisconsin. With 10 ski lifts, including two high-speed quads, serving 48 trails on 176 acres of terrain, Cascade is one of the largest ski areas in Wisconsin. Matt Voss is my guest. Matt, welcome to the storm. I am so pumped to catch up with you and talk some Wisconsin skiing today. How is everything in the Midwest today?
0: today is actually a turn of events for weather anyway it's a it's a little cooler than we've seen uh, recently which is it's good it's getting everybody excited but at the same time it's feeling the squeeze we've had some nice warm dry weather all summer to projects and yeah anytime it gets uh cooler and the ground gets moist it's a little more difficult to complete projects
1: now i know you don't rush the open like some of the folks in wisconsin like your friends up at trollhagen but last year they opened in October, as did Wild Mountain and Andes Tower Hills in Minnesota. So right in your neighborhood, as you look at the long-term forecast, Matt, do you have any optimism that you might be able to
0: start making snow soon? I wish I could say we were (laughs) ready to even make snow right now if it got cold enough. We've never really taken that outlook. And hats off to the groups that are getting it done and getting in the headlines for getting open. That's amazing. And it's something that Everybody's always interested in chasing around here, seeing if you know, we can get our, our hat in the ring and get in the mix. But it's just never been a part of the plan here. It just seems like we get a little more volatile weather in the fall. It seems like folks just to the west, just to the north of us, we, there's kind of a line. And maybe it's a figment of our imagination, but <laughs> we always feel like we're at a little bit of a disadvantage sometimes. We catch a lot of rain and a little bit warmer weather than what they see. But it's not, uh, like I said, it hasn't really been a part of the business plan here. To get one or two trails open, whether it's a lift or not or a hiking trail, Uh, we we just always kind of relied on uh, making sure we get the best quality out as soon as we can and making sure we can get as many runs open for that opening weekend when that time comes. So
1: what's your tell, Matt? Do you wait on a certain date? Like some operators I talk to say, anytime after November 1st, if we get the temperature, we're making snow. So do you have any sort of marker like that? Or you just wait for temperatures? Do you have a set date that you're going to try to open around Thanksgiving? What's your whole approach to opening?
0: That I mean, that's kind of the title of that theory is anytime after November 1st, if we get good weather, we're going to go for it. That being said, if we're looking at some long range or some weather patterns that are going to hold for some good cold snow making temps in uh, late October, if they were going to last for you know a couple days at a time, and then we didn't see a big warm swing to follow that, or rain, I think that would prompt us to to maybe start the guns up a little sooner and get some snow stockpiled.
1: So, what's your target opening date for this season? Do you have one, or do you take that week to week?
0: It's it's always the weekend after Thanksgiving is our target. That being said, we we're, we're not afraid to move that you know up a week or two if need be. You know if we if we saw the temps to really get the hill bombed to some snow early, we would definitely get the hill open a little quicker if we could. But like I said before, I think making sure that we have a lot of available terrain for that opening weekend is is key for us, especially you know with the high-speed quad being our bread-and-butter lift out of the base. We want to make sure if we're putting a lot of people up on the hill, they got somewhere to go.
1: So you have a little time left, and for folks listening we're recording this on October 10th. So several weeks yet before Cascade could open. It sounds like you have no shortage of things to do, Matt. Take us through how you've been spending your summer. I realize you don't have summer operations at Cascade, but what's been your big focus this summer as you look toward the 2023 to twenty four ski season?
0: Yeah, this year was a big, um, it was a little bit different from from what we've done past off seasons in that we really wanted to focus on uh, guest amenities. A lot of the, the customer facing projects that were. We're doing our renovations of buildings, restroom renovations, F&B service decks. We've got over 3,000 square foot of decks going in mm, nice. over by Cindy Pop in the Middle East to, to help kind of spread the crowd out a bit. Taking care of bottlenecks on hill. We, we have a lot of different trail merges that we've been working with. Changing the earthwork around a little bit to, to lend itself to a better experience for the customers. Paving the parking lot on top of the hill at the Daisy Lot. That, that was a big project, and we're, we're happy to have that that done so we're not dealing with frozen gravel and, and people getting stuck anymore and some legitimate parking spots so on those busy days they're they're not parking themselves in anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> that's nice. a big, a big <laughs> goal behind that uh, not having to call tow trucks anymore that'd be great so it's this summer was kind of uh as much as we want to charge ahead with huge s- snow making upgrades and lift projects that's the sexy stuff you know but this was a. Uh, kind of bring it back down to earth and make sure we're taking care of that. Those customer facing amenities uh, first and foremost, so that we can plan for some bigger expansions and things like that in the future. By our standards, it was not a huge snowmaking project this year, but we did invest in another 11 full auto SMI whole cats. So th- there was some more snowmaking infra- infrastructure upgrades this year too.
1: At this point, Matt, you know, you have a pretty mature hill. When you bring in things like those new SMI guns, are they replacing old equipment or are you adding those to the existing fleet?
0: It's kind of a mix. Back in the late 90s, they installed at that time, which was state-of-the-art York automated snowmaking system. They're heavily reliant on on high CFM air, uh, which was supported by, they had up to eight at one time diesel uh, air compressors on top of the hill, 1,600 CFM compressors per piece, and they, they just gobble up diesel like none other, So, which was was good for them back then. It worked well. It helped them get a lot of terrain open quickly, and on the automated system, it was just that much more efficient. But now, given where we're at and diesel consumption not being really something we want to stand behind, we're, we're trying to move that equipment over. And Now this year, we finally, this will be the 100% turnover on that equipment and replacement with the SMI system.
1: And where on the mountain are you going to stick those new guns?
0: So most of these new guns went along a lower end of Adele's Alley and leading into School Mar where those trails merge. Those are our, our priority one trails that we try and get those along with a half a dozen others open for that first opening weekend. So they took the place of some some York equipment, and then we added a few in here and there that would be non-replacements, um, but just to kind of bolster that system in those areas for the beginner train.
1: So you said you're moving away from diesel. Matt, what are the new guns run on and how far along are you in that transition?
0: Yeah, the SMI system we're running is is all, it's all electric, Press air compressors on board. So we don't have an on-hill air system per se anymore. It's still there. It won't be used though. We actually were able to get away from it for the most part last year. And then this was kind of the final phase of this journey of phasing out the diesel compressors and, and the old new York system. So I spoke
1: with, Joe Vanderkellen, I hosted him on the podcast, the president of SMI last year, and he was breaking down for us just how much more efficient this new generation of guns is than not only than the stuff when he started working there in the 70s when his parents founded the company, but even this stuff from 20 years ago. So as you start to fade out this equipment that, like you said, was really great in the late 90s, I mean, what can you tell us about how much more efficient as far as how much more snow you can make with the same amount or a lot less energy with this new generation of guns.
0: I couldn't give you a specific statistic on on how much more snow, but I can tell you hands down that (laughs) we're running these full auto guns next to even some of the older SMI equipment that's not full auto that we have. Not having to have a, a snowmaker on site to change how much water's flowing through that gun. And yeah, as the weather changes throughout the night, you could have somebody stationed at every gun to be able to make this happen efficiently. If they're able to throttle up or throttle down to make sure that snow quality is right where it needs to be uh, throughout the night without somebody having to have eyes on it the whole time, it's, I I couldn't, I'm not going to say it doubles your efficiency and how much snow you can put out, but it's the piles speak for themselves when you've them (laughs) stationed next to each other and I'd say we're seeing it, in my opinion, we're probably seeing at least a 30% increase in the full auto stuff versus the stuff that's not auto.
1: So year to year, folks are seeing a big improvement in the snowpack, it sounds like. You know, those lifestyle things that you mentioned are really important, Matt, the things like the deck so people can hang out, and you kind of create this sense of place. You said you were adding some stuff around Cindy Pop that's generally been kind of a congested area near the parking lot. Just explain to us, for those who are familiar with Cascade, what you did down there to maybe create that space and where those things will sit in relation to the lift.
0: Yeah. So the, that lower Cinepop, that around that load terminal of Cinepop Express is historically since 2016, when that got changed to a high speed, uh, the amount of traffic we see down there increased from what it was prior to that. And what that ended up doing is creating an area that is congested, there's no space available for a, a proper lift maze or corral. So we ended on the busier days. We end up seeing customers lining up, going up the beginner trail there far out, which comes into that load area from the east. So the, the lines extend that way and then they extend it to the west to the south up Cindy Pop and it was not not the best situation for controlling lift line traffic and making sure everybody felt like they were getting a fair shake at that next chair so by expanding that back we bumped out into the parking lot about 40 feet and kind of created a a nook we did lose some parking space there but it was warranted the gains we're going to see out of being able to organize the lift line traffic down there are going to be worth the, the small space we lost in the parking lot that coupled with you know, what we're going to be able to do down there for snow making and, and grooming and maintenance of the snow and then just the operations and how, how they're able to line up customers now and have a nice organized corral that's going to be a game changer in that area
1: do you park out much matt at
0: cascade not so much anymore pre-covid before we had any capacity restrictions it was pretty much a, a weekly basis on saturdays that we were getting close to or we were parked out and there was people parking on the county road and it just becomes a problem. But since then we've gotten to the point where we we get close to maxing out the parking lot, which is pretty huge by ski resort standards. Parking lots that we do have available. But at this point in time, we in the last few years we haven't gotten to the point where they're parking on the county road anymore.
1: So you are hit a really interesting circumstance. I mean, the ski areas are limited by all kinds of geography, but For those who want to pop over to the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com and look at the trail map, you'll see Cascade is right up against the interstate. And that is just an immovable object. So as you look at your parking lot squeezed between the mountain and the interstate, I mean long term, do you have potential to expand that matter? Are you kind of just stuck?
0: Long term, I'd say we're we're never stuck. There's opportunities further east. You know, as we move further east, there's already a small need for more F and B facilities, more amenities for the guests. So we have to be looking at that. And uh, alternatively, where, where we're going to park them, we can't expect people to only have the one entrance and parking lot on the west side of the property and then migrate through our lift chains all the way to the, the skible train on the east. And the further we push east, that's not really feasible. So there is some space down there, not much, um, but there's some space for some satellite parking um, that would probably equal the size of parking that we have on top of the hill at the Daisy Lodge.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Feature of Cascade is a mid-mountain parking lot. That's pretty rare in skiing, particularly in the Midwest. And as you mentioned, as folks ride that Cindy Pop lift up this year, they will see the new paved Daisy lot. Why was it time for that upgrade, Matt?
0: We're trying to reinvest in that lodge a little more. When COVID hit, we ended up scaling back our F&B operations and our in-house services. So we kind of left that building on the back burner a little bit. It's a great outlet, it's a great spot. Anybody that's been in that Daisy Lodge realizes it's probably the best lodge on the hill. The views you have and the accessible ski terrain, 360 degrees of that building. It's a great spot. Um, We wanted to kind of reinvest in that and dedicate some more open hours to that building. We're going to staff it heavier. We're going to run more F&B out of that building than we have in the last few years and try and keep it open on at least a five day week, if not more, especially during the holidays, seven day week schedule uh, for F&B service. We're moving some ticketing up there too, so that all of our guests won't have to get ticketing at the base lodge anymore be able to take care of that on top of the hill or at that mid-mountain lodge so in combination with reinvesting in that building the operations out of that building we felt it was time to have a legitimate hard surface parking lot with some official parking striping in it to alleviate some of the issues that we've had in the past when it's just been a gravel parking lot it's not the easiest thing to keep clean and de-iced in the winter and hopefully this helps out quite a bit
1: you know those mid-mountain lots, these little satellite lots that are really convenient to skiing. They have a tendency to be really fun. And I'm not sure what the scene is like at Cascade, Map, but lots like this tend to draw the skiers that know the area really well, right? Because if you go there just once in a while, you're probably not even going to know about it because you have to go and come up around the back and, and go up over the summit to even access it. So what's the scene like there on a nice sunny day? Is that, is that a tailgate spot to people get out and Pull the grills out and, and have a good time in that lot?
0: Yes, without without <laughs> without any question, Mark, in that voice at all, it, it is a yes. It's heavily season pass holder, occupied parking. They know what they're getting into and they, they know where to head to stay out of the crowd. And that's the first place the season pass holders are going on a, a bluebird Saturday or Sunday for sure. They break the grills out. They, they try and get the tents and the tables and stuff out. <laughs> we have to obviously monitor that. We can't make it unsafe. We've got to make sure right. we can, that parking lot to capacity too so it's a little bit of a good cop bad cop sometimes and it's not uncommon for me to be patrolling that parking lot myself telling somebody nope you got to extinguish that wood fire <laughs> you can't have that in the parking lot and so it's yeah play with it a little bit it's a good it's a good atmosphere up there definitely but we got to make sure everybody's staying safe and we're not uh, inhibiting somebody else from from parking in a good spot
1: Like I said, a mid-mountain lot is pretty unusual for the Midwest. Has that ever been in danger of being taken over by ski terrain and eliminating that lot altogether? Or or is it just because of the way that it sits on the mountain? Does it just work to have it there?
0: It really does just work. We're not losing anything that we currently Able to do with the ski terrain. We've got a trail that comes sweeps around it towards the east called Sarah Smile that kind of takes the whole eastern half of that parking lot and goes around it. And a lot of people actually ski and ski out off of that trail and then hop in their cars, grab some lunch, stop by and grab some gloves, whatever it is, and then they hop back on their skis and boards and head down Sarah Smile. But it's actually kind of a cool spot, and I don't really see how adding ski terrain through there would, would help the resort at all. It's definitely a bonus to have that parking where it's at. So it's not like
1: you've been busy this summer, even busier last summer, I would imagine, because last summer you were installing a brand new lift, the JL2 lift, which replaced the longstanding Mogul Monster. With a season under your belt here, Matt, how happy were you with JL2?
0: Very happy. I mean, as, as great as that Borvic Triple was, that Mogul Monster lift, growing up, I remember being on that thing daily as a kid, and it was just a staple for that resort. We knew we would lose a little bit of that. Um, Nostalgia by throwing in a new lift, and I mean every every resort that replaces an old lift that's been a bread and butter for them. It's hard, but the operations <laughs> while running that lift compared to you know an older Borbig triple ran so smoothly, and uh, the amount of people we can move up the hill now with that quad versus a triple, and just the ease of loading and the the nicer profile that that lift has compared to the the old mogul lift which had one less tower. Towers were extremely high. It didn't have a compression tower at the base of the head wall. So it was a if that lift was starting and stopping a lot for beginners, you get that dynamic lift bounce in between these long stretches of towers. <laughs> and, and maybe in the 80s and 90s, everybody was cool with that because it was kind of the norm, but it's not really the case with your average four or five, six-year-old beginners anymore. If a lift does that, it, it definitely gets their heart pounding. So it's a very smooth running lift, and uh, we're really happy to have that in the mix now.
1: And probably no safety bars on the old lift either.
0: There were. There were actually oh, there were. safety okay. bars on that board, yep. Yeah, so it's we didn't get anything there, but just uh, the easy use and that the profile being a little little nicer for beginner traffic and families to deal with. It's been a blessing.
1: So tell us about the name change, Matt. The this is at least the third lift on that line, and the previous two were both called Mogul Monster. Why did you decide to change the name to JL Two, and what does that mean?
0: Yeah, well, you know, over the last you know for the seven eight years I've been here, we've neglected to have the moguls on that trail. Okay. We're back in the 80s and 90s, so we always kind of got this question as to you know why why don't you let moguls grow here? And the clientele and the customers that ski and ride have kind of changed a little bit too over the years, where moguls are not, especially on a steep trail like that, mm-hmm. they're not really conducive to some of the people that attempt that trail so we have neglected to really allow moguls to form on that trail we've made a few attempts at it here and there and by the end of a week or two of that attempt we decided we need to scrub them and just make nice right. groomed surface so that's always lingering in the background is this trail called mogul monster that never has moguls anymore um and then putting this new lift in one of our operations managers here had an excellent idea that we go ahead and name it after two individuals that were a big part of the cascade family back in the 90s um Jared Law and Justin Lentz. Okay. These are two individuals that were part of that ski culture. There was a couple of groups around here. One called the Cascade Posse, and the other was the Sea Crew. Okay. And, and these guys were definitely a part of that. And they were they were the ones that were out here on a daily basis. Uh, they lost their lives in an avalanche. They were riding mm. together out in Colorado in 2014. Mm. Um, so they, their families and their friends are. I mean, long-term, long-time skiers here at Cascade, and they, pay, they patronize at Cascade every, every weekend, and we just thought it would be a really good tribute to those two individuals. They, they uh, no other way to say it, they helped develop the ski culture that, that kind of resides at Cascade and, and Portage, you know, the city of Portage near us, to be honest.
1: Wow, that, that's a really amazing tribute, Matt. That's really cool and really special define that culture for us a little bit, because I, I would imagine that there's probably two groups of people listening to this. One is Cascade Hardcore, who are super pumped to hear you talk about the ski area, hear us talk about it for an hour. And probably folks who just listen to the podcast in general, you know, haven't been to Cascade or maybe even skied in Wisconsin or in the Midwest at all. What, what's, help us define what it's like at Cascade, what that culture is that those two gentlemen helped to form.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, I grew up, I grew up skiing here also in the eighties and the nineties. And actually I went to school with Jared Law. He was a good friend of mine and hmm. part of the crew that we rode and skied with, uh, every day in the winter. And, uh, yeah. it's, it almost seemed like the, the teenage community, the high school community, um, and the young family community at that time really grasped cascade as a place to be in the winter. And there, it, it almost seemed like there was nothing else going on nobody cared about ice fishing nobody cared about (laughs) other winter recreation um during that time period anyway from what i can remember and it was it was like the place to be Uh, and it it seems like it's kind of redeveloped or it's it's continued to develop since then uh, the locals around here they they still come to cascade on a regular basis whenever they can and it's it's i don't know it almost created kind of a weird little midwest D town Mm -hmm. that uh, I I have yet to experience anywhere in the Midwest, that they they fully support Cascade and everything we do here. And the season pass holders, the weekend trippers that that come here that are are locals, you know, from within an hour of here even, you know, they call this place home in the winter, and it's a really unique vibe. You
1: know, it's interesting that Cascade is not too far from Devil's Head, which is another pretty well-developed ski area. Just from a cultural point of view, Matt, help us understand what distinguishes... Those two ski resorts—do you sort of complement each other? Are you competitors? Are you friends? Kind of, what's that relationship like, and what sets the two apart?
0: Yeah, great question. I, I really think we complement each other very well. It's not—it um, seems—it seems like two different types of skier snowboarder crowds that visit both facilities. You know, Cascade—you you mentioned already—we're sandwiched right next to the interstate, um, so you know, which nobody's ever going to complain about that. That works at Cascade because it's the <laughs> visibility and. location 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 it doesn't get any better than that so it's really easy for uh, people traveling out of chicago and madison to get here you know they they hit the exit on i-9094 and they don't get off that highway until they they reach our front door so the the families um, intermediates i mean experts as well but it it just seems like it's a very easy way to get to a large midwest ski resort Uh, devil's head is set back a little bit in the woods compared to where we're at I think it's a little harder to get to. They are more secluded. They have a a different vibe going on there for sure. A lot of fixed grips lifts and uh, the skier terrain is a little different there in that it's it really is kind of set in the woods and a little more serene. I'm gonna give them that for sure. Where at Cascade, it's a little more opened up and we see a lot of a lot of families, intermediates and beginners, people that wanna really get into the sport or are into the sport but don't have the time to you know travel into the woods a little bit further and, and make that track. With our base facilities and everything, we make it really easy for groups and families to come through and get taken care of real quick and out on the hill. So like I said, it's, I think we complement each other very well. I'm not going to say two distinct different groups of skiers, but the vibe is definitely different.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you draw a lot of volume there, and you've definitely built up the lift infrastructure to match. Just back to last year's upgrade to JL2 real quick here, Matt. So as I mentioned in the intro, Cascade has two high-speed quads, and that's impressive for the Midwest, and you also have some fixed grip quads. JL2 actually runs right in between those two high speeds, Cindy Pop and Top Express, and it's about the same length. Take us into your decision to make JL to a fixed grip lift rather than putting in a third high speed
0: quad there. Yeah, yeah, it definitely was not an easy decision. It seems like anytime you're going to put in a new lift anymore, it's and I you shouldn't rely on you know any any word of mouth afterwards or anybody speaking bad about you putting in a fixed grip. You know, it seems like that's all anybody gets though when they yeah. put in a fixed. And although that shouldn't weigh on your mind, it's obviously in the back of your mind. But. Right. Given the location of that lift, it it services all of the exact same terrain that the mountaintop express, the detachable quad services. I don't want to say it's just an overflow lift in case that lift line grows at that mountaintop express, Um, but that is what it does a lot of the time on Saturdays, Sundays. We operate that lift all throughout the week anyway, so there's a lot of people that do want to just ride that lift and have a five and a half minute ride up as opposed to two and a half and maybe take a little bit longer break. But as far as us deciding on why to put that Lift in as a fixed grip. Although there was some deliberation, uh, ultimately it was because it serves the same terrain as the lift right next door, which is a detachable. Given the capacities that we still have in place, we don't see the need to be able to move that many people up the hill that fast.
1: I'm curious about the different configurations you might have considered here, Matt, because the lift you end up with is never the only option that you considered, right? So you look at Mountain Top Express, dates to 1998. Did you look at all at maybe upgrading that to a six and just getting rid of the JL2 mogul monster altogether? And and if that was an option you considered, ultimately, why did it make more sense to have two lifts there?
0: Yeah, the idea crossed our mind. It was definitely part of the decision-making. Putting a six in place of that four I mean, ultimately, that that would be a goal of Cascade to be able to service out of that base area a little quicker and move people out of that base area, especially since everybody seems to want to head to the east to that newer train. At this time, having that backup lift, though, especially, you know, a new lift like that, in case that lift ever does go down, it, it happens to all lifts at some point in time. where, yeah. And it always happens, you know, at two in the afternoon on a bluebird Saturday, <laughs> where a lift will go down for a period of time, whether it's just for some maintenance items or There's something you actually have to diagnose and figure out. It's pretty nice to have a backup lift right next door that can handle a significant amount of traffic. That being said, if that was a a detachable there where that JL2 lift got installed, that would be phenomenal in that scenario, but we definitely can't plan on having that scenario often. That doppelmeyer does not go down often when it does. It's, it's just your your typical uh, snafu in the comm system, something like that. It's usually resolved in pretty short order, but it is definitely nice to have a lift that serves the exact same train right next door that you can just shift the line over to.
1: You know, I was talking to some folks out east and icing is a big problem out there with the detachable lifts. And that's oftentimes cited as the reason why they don't want to have two high speed side by side. It's because if the high speed goes down, you can still run The fixed grip lift, even if there's an icing problem, is that an issue in general in Wisconsin? Is that something you have to deal with? Was that a factor at all?
0: It is. It was definitely a factor in the decision making. It's not as big of an issue, at least for us here at Cascade. It's not as what they see out east. It doesn't seem. As far as ice holds and opening holds uh, due to ice storms and that, we rarely see them. Maybe once a season, twice a season in a bad year. And it is nice just to have that fixed grip right next door to fire up. (laughs) You know it's gotten to the point where we in the midwest we really don't consider having a holding facility for the detachable chairs overnight like they do out west and some out east which would resolve that issue it's a timing and launching issue for those chairs when the pull rope does get iced up but the limited amount of time that it actually happens for us at cascade anyway it really hasn't caused a big enough problem or was a major part of the decision making but it was definitely one of the check boxes when we were deciding whether to go with a, a fixed or a detachable
1: so you look at the mountain today, Matt, and it must be so cool as someone who grew up there to see this place evolve into this premier ski center in the Midwest. So I just wanna go back to this here, Matt. You know, Tell us what it was like to grow up at Cascade. I mean, what, what was the mountain like? What are your earliest memories of the place?
0: My earliest memory is my dad putting me on the North Wall, <laughs> which is one of our Black Diamond trails. <laughs> um, in pretty quick order, I, it's not the first trail he took me on, but it was definitely right. one of second or third, maybe I don't know. <laughs> but he, we grew up uh, my my house, my family home where I was born and raised it was just a couple miles from Cascade, so I was lucky to have a really quick commute. Um, and in the mid '80s, my dad actually started working at Cascade, and
1: mm.
0: he actually became mountain manager here uh, oh, cool. in the '80s, and then through uh, through the '90s, mm. and so I. I was on the hill. I, I mean, I, I could get out the stacks of lift tickets that I that now my parents save, but there has to be on average and 90, 95 tickets a year. Unbelievable. My schooling suffered because of it, but <laughs> I think all my friends and that Cascade Posse and all that crew I rolled with, they
1: mm-hmm.
0: I, their schooling probably didn't suffer as much as mine, but they have equal amount of lift tickets. <laughs> like I said, that was what that was what we did. You know, in the in the late eighties and the nineties, it was everybody just. The hill was open we were here, whether that was a weeknight or a weekend. At that time, it, it felt so massive to me, this ski resort, especially when I first started in the mid-'80s. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't even know some of the terrain. You know, it would be a year or two yeah. later before I finally skied some of the other trails and terrain that I had no idea was even there. My dad was wow. working here at the time. You know, <laughs> As I grew up and, and was racing, I, I was in the Jar League and in USSA. Um, I got to visit a lot of Midwest ski areas and learned that, okay, there's a lot more out there than just Cascade, but it was just a, it was really a vibe and a culture. Maybe it was just the friend group that I hung out with, but it seemed like our entire town was just really into being at Cascade every night it was open.
1: So was Cascade, did that end up being your first job?
0: Uh, It was not my first job. No, I, uh, Worked some other local jobs and tried to get into some auto mechanics and things like that in the area, but ended up working. It was my first job in the ski industry, and that was uh, when I was 17. I actually worked in the kitchen for our F&B manager, who is still the F&B manager oh, cool. to this day. But yeah, that's where I started was in, was in the kitchen. I had worked in the Dells my teenage years in, in a couple different kitchens and restaurants in the Dells, so that's where my experience was at that time. I brought it to Cascade for that first year, and that's how it started.
1: So have you been there ever since matt or did you range out a little bit and explore the world and come back
0: i don't want to say i explored the world because i stayed within the industry completely right. in uh, 98 my family purchased a ski resort and my parents i did not contribute whatsoever financially but it was my my dad dave voss and mother sue voss they bought a ski resort in northern wisconsin so at that time, I was deliberating at going to uh, go Community College for ski area management, or yep. uh, I was looking at going into law enforcement. I have no idea why. Given my checker okay. passed, I don't think they would have taken <laughs> me. Yeah, you know, they, they really wanted to purchase that resort and make a go of it. And then my dad at that time said, you know, you can go to Go-Give-It, you can you can know, get that, but I promise you're going to get some hands-on education quicker if you come with me and work with me at Christie mountain in Northern Wisconsin. So I went ahead and did that with them. And it's been a pleasure to be in the industry ever since I haven't looked back. I did that for 10 years, started growing a family, my wife, Sam, and And I started having kids, and at that time, the time constraints and everybody that knows, everybody that's listening to this that's in the industry knows what kind of time it takes, what kind of time they have to dedicate to this industry, and it was taking a toll, and it was hard to deal with, as everybody encounters. And for a split second, we decided we're going to get out of this industry. I'm going to do something else. I was working off seasons doing infrastructure construction. Was going to do that. We moved back down to the Madison area because that's where our family and friends were originally. So after ten years we moved down here and I think I was out of the industry for about three months <laughs> before I before I got a call and uh started working at Christmas Mountain, which is Lake Dell Wisconsin Dells. Started working there and as started as mountain manager and then ended up being a director of retail operations and did that for seven years. Started looking around. It's it's a very small operation at Christmas Mountain and I think boredom probably started to set in. So I don't know whether Rob Walls, the owner of Cascade, if he could feel the neck hairs tingling or if he maybe ran into me and noticed how bored maybe I looked. I, I decided I should probably take a job with him if he offered it. And he did.
1: So the Walls family has actually owned Cascade for several decades. Tell us about the family, Matt, and your relationship with them.
0: Yeah, so Phil Walls, that would be Rob Walls' father, bought the place in 1977. So they, the Walls family has had it since then. Cascade originally opened in 1962. Some local businessmen opened it in 77 is when Phil bought it after him and Adele, his wife, and the family used to come up on uh, from the Chicago area on camping trips, some of the campgrounds in the area. They saw an opportunity that probably wasn't being taken to run this place more efficiently and more profitably. That's when they decided to leap in in 77. Mm-hmm. So ever since then, it's been family owned. I think Rob and his wife, Vicki, officially took over operations and purchased the place from them in uh, 2010, but they were always a big part of the operations you know, during that whole span in between. Rob has three sons, two of which are have been in the industry, <laughs> I think since they were 14 when they started targeting rentals or F&B. And uh, they're heavily invested in it and they no signs of leaving either. I think they want to take this over and and make a run of it and keep it in the family.
1: Well, I think Cascade skiers are probably really encouraged to hear that. You know, there's a lot of family owned ski areas still in the Midwest, but we have started to see some consolidation. Wisconsin Resorts has been buying up a bunch of them in Michigan and and Alpine Valley in Wisconsin. Vail Resorts obviously came in and bought Wilmot in Wisconsin and Afton Alps up in Minnesota. I have to imagine that when Vale was shopping around, they saw that nice little ski area right off I ninety four, right north of Madison, and came knocking on the door. Do you know if that happened? And and if so, or if not, why is it important for the Wallace family to keep this thing independent, keep it family owned?
0: There's been some rumblings about different investors you know, looking for opportunity. I I don't know the specifics of it, and I think the reason I don't know the specifics of it is because of uh, Rob and Vicky's dedication to keep this a family-owned and operated ski resort. I'm sure if I pried, I could get some stories, but <laughs> it's it's you know I, I keep talking about vibe, but that there really is kind of the vibe at Cascade, uh, family-owned and operated, and we we service the family ski consumers. It's a big part of our uh, mission statement at Cascade, and and making sure that we're taking care of families, and it's. I think it's a big part of how the ownership views their operating the resort and making sure it's a family owned and operated. And as long as there's interest in within the family, you know, with his, his two sons, Adam and Evan, I see no reason why, you know, they'd, they'd want to not be a family owned and operated business anymore.
1: You know, it's a really substantial operation and it's the kind of place where a family could easily set up for a weekend. For now, it's a day ski area, no overnight lodging on the hill that I'm aware of, correct me if I'm wrong and no summer operations really to speak of. Long-term, do you see, or does the family, the Walls family, see opportunities to develop any of those things, maybe build a hotel or condos or add something in the summer? Do they have ambitions to grow the business beyond, or do they just like it being a very good day ski area?
0: It's a question we get all the time, Stuart, and it's I mean, super long-term, who knows, you know, opportunities always present themselves, but in the immediate long-term future, you know, from our planning and forecasting anyway, it's not really in our wheelhouse. I could see a day when potentially some outside investment comes in, in the area, you know, surrounding cascade a little bit to do some some lodging. Opportunities, F&B opportunities potentially. But the way we look at it right now is we, we have such a, a core dedicated group and staff that work here year, year-round. And we grind them to the bone in the winter, you know, working yeah. those hours that ski industry knows we work. I can't imagine doing that to them, uh, both in the off-season. It's one of the reasons we don't do off-season operations at all summer operations biking anything like that is we like to give our crew a little bit of a break and and really let them digest a bit in the summer months adding a hotel or any kind of lodging i think would interfere with what we do and what we do best. Not far from here, you know, just down the road, 15 minutes, 20 minutes exit to exit is Wisconsin Dells, Lake Delton area, which has, you know, lodging to the extreme. So that end of it I think is pretty much taken care of. Although it's not ski and ski out, it's close enough that it makes it work and it really allows Cascade and our crew to dedicate itself to the, just the quality of skiing and snowboarding and not necessarily uh, splitting our attention into other avenues.
1: Well, the upside of that for skiers is that you've been able to really hyper-focus on the mountain and just building a really good ski experience. And part of a really good ski experience is having a really good lift fleet. And Cascade has an awesome lift fleet. And, and it's pretty new. Almost everything has been built within the past 25 years. You do have a couple older lifts. The Manitou Quad dates to 1988. You have a couple of old Borvig doubles. Uh, as I mentioned, Mountaintop Express was built in 98. Probably fine, but You know, those that generation of high speed lifts has a a, a lot of or some obsolete things on it now that you could upgrade. As you look around the mountain, Matt, long term, what's your wish list for upgrades to Cascades Lift Fleet?
0: That's a chess game, right? trying right. to figure out you know which lifts service which terrain and the age of them and how to prioritize you know replacement or upgrading of them the manitou lift that you spoke of that that's a Borbid quad that it, yeah it's on the older side but it it services a small portion of the terrain at cascade it, honestly it's, it serves more of our race team train and for their training and races so that one is probably not a front runner for replacement some of the doubles service some of the beginner train that we have here and, and they're very short lifts although that means that they have a high cycle on the on the haul rope and the running gear. They would definitely be in the mix for talks of upgrades and replacement in the future. We have gone through and updated drives on all of these lifts. So that's one step we've taken to make sure that they're you know they're staying up to current code and we don't have communication issues and drive failures like some of the old FinCore drives and the Borbigs that we used to run. But if I had a wish list I'd say we'd probably start there in some of our beginner train and, and then move to the older stuff. Obviously the, the ninety eight Uh, doppelmeyer mount top express detachable it's not one of our older lifts but it's the one that gets used the heaviest so there's definitely uh, planning involved on what we're going to do with that lift in the future and how we could potentially upgrade that whether that's a renovation of the current lift and just updating it or completely replacing that and you had mentioned a six-pack in that area before if that makes sense for us in the area we have available you know, to run a six pack drive out of that area versus that four place. It's definitely in the mix for conversation. Do you
1: like in general where your lifts are? If you were to take the school Marm and Bunny, those two double chairs, could you see consolidating those to maybe one SkyTrack quad or something? Or, or is there anywhere else that you would like to add a lift that you don't have one?
0: I think that beginner area with the, the school marm and the bunny lift, it works really well with two different lifts. That bunny lift, the lift line is so short, it only goes half the distance up that trail. Um, so it's a really good, for progression sake, it's really nice for somebody that's never rode a lift before to get on that one and have a have a nice short lift ride and then you get the feet on the ground for a little while. And then the school marm is a really natural progression that's you know double the line length, double the amount of skiable train coming down that beginner run school mark. We would never replace both of those with one quad. I, I can see what that would do to our lift lines. And when everybody knows if you're trying to stack four beginners onto a quad, typically you're not running four people on that lift all the time. It's either that or you're gonna be stopping that lift off an awful lot. So Having two different lifts, I can see potentially, you know, if and when that upgrade ever happens to those lifts, I can see them potentially going up to a higher count, higher seat count, whether that's a triple or a quad, just to accommodate on the busier days. But I would never see consolidating those into one lift. I think they serve a really good progression purpose over there.
1: Anywhere else you would like a lift, maybe from the base of Cindy Pop up to the far out so people could lap those black diamonds or maybe from byway? up to the summit to lap that upper pod or is it just too expensive to put in a whole lift to serve a pod that small?
0: It, I mean, I wouldn't say as long as the value is there, I I wouldn't say it's too expensive, but how Cascades laid out in the way our terrain lays out in that top section, top third, top quarter of the trails tend to be uh, a slighter grade before you hit the, the headwall and the ridge line to service that terrain up top with a dedicated lift. I think would you'd be missing out on the value of our terrain. If anything, I think you'd probably be on the, the lower end of the hill to get to the top of the headwalls and, and unload up there as opposed to taking them all the way up to the very top and just serving that low gradient.
1: Did you guys consider a uh, mid-station for Cindy Pop that would have let off on East Ridge so folks could lap that black stuff?
0: I know it was in consideration um and that that lift planning was happening prior to me arriving at cascade i came in that spring of 2016 and that's when we were just starting to break ground on the expansion and the two new lifts um i know it was part of the discussion and planning but where that mid station would have it would have put itself right in the middle of some pretty good skier train and it was you're talking only only another right 35 45 seconds to get to the, the top from that area anyway
1: You know, one thing I I toured the Midwest last year and in Wisconsin and Minnesota, in particular, Matt, they a lot of the scariest have these high speed rope toes, which which I know you and I discussed down in Savannah, which are really, really awesome. And I think you have one serving your mountaintop park. How much do you like that lift? And have you considered adding others maybe along JJ where the terrain park is there?
0: Yeah, having that terrain park right underneath that bread and butter lift at high-speed Doppelmayr—it's cool in some regards. It's also like that's where that's where you see the most kids falling off of rails and and laying there with ski patrol taping up their wrists and <laughs> no. putting in slings because you know what I mean. So it's yeah, you get that visibility as well. But bar none, that RoTo and that it being a high-speed in that terrain park serves it very well. You know, once the kids, once we get the terrain park dialed in in that area. It's just a a train. It's just railroad tracks going up that that high-speed rope and then down through the the setups and it's fun to watch, and I know it kind of sets a tone for that that area. And park crew, they really get their stereo going in that area. And it's a really cool environment, and we've definitely looked at different areas to kind of replicate that environment. Maybe to take the pressure off of that one high-speed rope. The JJ setup—that's our larger train park with the larger features—and it's steeper. It, it's probably honestly a little steep for train parks, but it, it is a good location for us. But to put a rope tow on that would be a little weird. I think we'd run into some issues with how steep it is. We would only be able to service the top third of that trail with a rope tow. And honestly, the good stuff on that terrain park are down on the headwall and towards the bottom. So, But we have talked about the, the Cottontail Park. That's a our beginner park, progression park. We've talked about adding a rope tow in there. We do have that the lift that's dedicated for that trail. It serves other terrain, but 99% of the time, the people riding that lift are hitting that progression park. We would like to... Uh, look at a high-speed rope to uh, offset the crowd in that area on the weekends for sure. And the skier's left side, the west side of that terrain, the, the train itself is uh, conducive to a rope tow. So that's something we're looking at.
1: So as I mentioned, big lift project last summer with JL2. I'm not sure if you'd arrived at Cascade in 2016, Matt, but that was an even bigger summer when Cascade installed two lifts, the B-Dub fixed grip quad and the Cindy Pop Express, both major projects. Were you there in 2016, Matt, when that all went down?
0: Yeah, yeah, so it was just after uh, after we closed the hill in 2016 at Christmas Mountain, so it would have been March that I started getting into discussions with Rob about coming over, and then it was April of 2016 that I came over here, and as soon as, as snow was still melting off the hill at that time, and we were already starting to break ground for some of these projects, and I had never been at a resort that had installed a lift uh, to that time, so it was very eye-opening for me. And honestly, getting thrown right into the fire and doing two lifts in one year, I guess it made no difference to me because I hadn't been a part of an install anyway. It just—it right. <laughs> was it was chaos, and that was a, a wild year for weather too. We had a long period of drought to start the summer off, I remember that, just digging and doing locating and things like that, and just hard pan, just baked clay, and then it seemed like the second half of the summer was just a deluge it was like monsoon season and then in wet clay the rest of the the rest of the builds so it was pretty wild to this day knowing what i know now i, I can't believe that that project was undertaken that way because um, it i mean on top of the two lifts going in i mean there was miles and miles of snow making infrastructure that we did that all in house uh, pipe and power and installation of a a large smi you know auto fleet build out it's, we just never looked up. It was just a, a grind every day. And up until opening day, I think that's when everybody finally took a breath and was like, holy crap. Like, <laughs> we, we actually did all this in one summer, you know? And, and maybe that's why to this day, every summer, we, we book ourselves out with all kinds of uh, projects, but it just pales in comparison to that 2016 summer.
1: <laughs> do you know what inspired them to do all that at once? Because to make this point for the listener, Cindy Pop was a replacement, but Beta was actually an expansion. It was an all new lift serving all new terrain. So, what I mean, did they just get a deal on two lifts in one summer? Like, what? Why did they do that?
0: No, I, I think because of the the terrain that had already been cut and kind of laid out there by SE Group back in the nineties, it had been sitting idle for so long. I think the pressure just mounted from the skier public. You drive past it on the interstate every day, and you know what? This is some great terrain. Why isn't open? I mean. I remember when I was a teenager, I remember that same sentiment. I think it just finally got to the point where we got to do this. And then to to justify that expansion to the east and get the full skiable terrain out of it, it made sense to replace that Cindy lift. And that lift line actually got extended by, I want to say, 600 some feet from where it originally unloaded to the very top of the Cascade property. So that allowed some access trails to get from that area further to the east. So I think it kind of had to be done to be done well and to let customers access that stuff with ease. I think that that new lift had to go or the old Cindy Pop lift had to be replaced. And the unload location just fits the bill for that expansion.
1: So since you had a cool story about the JL2 lift name, I'll ask you the same question about Cindy Pop and B-Dub. Do those names mean anything? Is there a story behind either of
0: those? Yeah, the <laughs> Cindy Pop lift was named after after Rob's family member, Cindy Rob Walls. If you're used to Cascade, if you're one of the diehards, you'll you'll know the history behind all of these trail names. Um, but many of them are named after family members within the Walls family. Cindy Pop was was named after Cindy, and uh, B Dub was actually uh, named after Brennan Walls, who's Rob's son that is not part of the working group here at Cascade. But B Dub uh, Brennan Walls, apparently that was his nickname back in the day. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that was uh, so. We also have a uh, Ewok is one of the trail names out there to the east. And then uh, AWOL is another one. And those would be for uh, Evan Walls and Adam Walls. So that's (laughs) nicknames from the past. And I think it was a shot from Rob to his sons to be able to throw their nicknames on on the trails.
1: That is so cool. Some family hieroglyphics on the trail map. So I'll I'll bother you with the same question here as I did with JL2. Cindy Pop is a little longer than B-Dub. Both have about the same vert. Cindy Pop went high speed. B Dub was a fixed grip. I appreciate that you showed up and those decisions had already been made. But I'm sure this is something skiers wonder about. Was it just the extra length of Cindy Pop that made you go high speed over there, or was there another reason? Maybe, maybe you had to, could only afford one high speed that summer.
0: No, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't necessarily that as to just how the the flow of traffic is going to go when it moves to the east. If you were to start in the base area and work your way over to that expansion train to the far east, and if that Cindy Pop lift was not a high speed, you're you're adding a considerable chunk of time onto that travel time to the far east. Now, as far as making B-Dub a fixed grip as opposed to a high speed over there at the end of the line, it would have made sense, I think, if that was the end of the line, but the way our future planning and expansion plans for moving even further to the east over there. It lends itself to that next lift being a a high speed. And then the, the next lift after that, which would bookend the property and skiable terrain, that would finally end up being a fixed grip. Every two lifts serve roughly the same skiable terrain. That there's an option for a high speed and an option for a fixed grip i think lends itself well to the traffic we have at cascade and and how people move throughout this resort so it's not i mean it was never in everybody's head that every other lift is going to be a high speed but the way we see the traffic moving and with the skiable train we have and the the length of our trails it makes sense for us for those lifts to be kind of alternating between a high speed and a fixed
1: Matt, I want to dig into what you just said, because that's some red meat for the listeners, I think, the Cascade Loyal. Now, if you look on Google Maps, there's a bunch of trails cut, even skiers right, of Ewok, as far as I can tell. And I I believe what you were just referencing is potential expansion into that, and then maybe even expansion beyond that. So what can you tell us about the potential for Cascade and that for expansion in that direction at Cascade? And your current thinking around when that could actually happen
0: yeah it's red meat for sure <laughs> our, <laughs> our customers have been customers and people that travel that interstate i mean they've been picking off that red meat for years it's um <laughs> i can tell you that that the trails that are currently cut further to the east over there are probably the best terrain that cascade would have to offer and we're we're the plan is is to move that direction uh, timeline on that plan is really hard you know, with the environment that we have now post-COVID and kind of changed how we uh, strategize our business every year. The plan has evolved, but it hasn't gone away. That's for sure. We, we look at it every year. Um, we try and timeline the expansion projects the next two phases for the next two lift builds build outs every year and it needs to make sense obviously financially and to jump in with a with a high speed lift and snow making over there and what that what that does to our our budgeting is at the top of the list for trying to make that decision like I said though because it is such valuable terrain over there it's on our minds daily and we're I want to say monthly it comes up in our admin meetings that we try and do a little more planning around that and when the best timeline would be it? Yeah, recently we've, we've definitely been uh, doing a little more investigating into what it's gonna to take to put that next lift in.
1: So if the next lift, just speaking around how you're thinking about this, those trails that are referred to that you can see on Google Maps are cut right now. Would the next lift serve just those trails or are there more that you would cut for that?
0: The, the, the next lift would service the trails that are already cut. There's a couple feeder trails off the top depending on where that lift unload actually end up being placed there's a couple feeder trails that still would have to get cut in to get to the main larger trails but the trails that are there right now would be I believe it's about 70% served by the new lift that goes in the trails that are cut furthest to the east those would definitely take there's a there's a huge ravine that separates the two the two sections so there would definitely have to be a, another lift added to get the full you know 100% of what's cut over there into skiable terrain
1: and beyond what we can see is cut on the map, and I'll include these images in the article that accompanies this on StormSkiing.com. Is there even more tra- trails that you could cut east of that?
0: It, we're quickly uh, getting up to where our current property ownership is hmm. for Cascade. Yeah. Not to say that there's not property coming all the way around that ridge that could be uh, terrain, um, but it's definitely, it's not property that Cascade has acquired yet We haven't thought that far in advance to think that we need to purchase more. We need to look at (laughs) what we have in front of us right now and those trails that are cut to satisfy what everybody sees every day when they drive by.
1: So if there was any expansion, it looks like it would have to be east. It looks like it's kind of flat up top and it looks like to the west there's roads and farmland and everything else. So is that the case? Is east the direction you'd have to go?
0: Yeah, east is the direction. There, There is some area to to the west. Um, it, like you, you mentioned, there is a Fox Glen Road is a county road that we'd quickly come up on.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But just to the, the north of our current Adele's Alley that swings out and almost touches that road, just to the north of that, there's a pretty good chunk of uh, land there that uh, it would lend itself to beginner terrain and learning terrain. And this is really out there thinking or out there planning. It's nothing that's in our short term. but someday we'd like to see a better learning facility and possibly start getting into some train based learning. And that location up in there is, like I said, conducive to, to some beginner train and, and learning centers.
1: All right, Matt, I want to wrap up today with a discussion on passes. And you and I met down in Savannah at the National Ski Area Association Convention. And you were good enough to join me on a panel with some other GMs who all had something in common. And it was the leaders of Mount Rose out in Nevada and Mount Baker in Washington. And and Laszlo Vete, the owner of Platykill in New York. And what you all had in common was you all have these big, attractive mountains that could probably fit on just about any multi mountain pass. And you've all chosen to sit out that craze. And that was a great conversation, but it wasn't recorded. So so the general public hasn't heard it yet. If you wouldn't mind here for the listeners, Matt, just reset that. I mean, obviously, Cascade would be a great addition to indie pass to the epic pass even the icon pass because you could get those big city folks who would who would want to day ski at cascade and then go for a bigger adventure out west why so far have you chosen to sit out the multi-mountain pass push here matt
0: yeah it's a good question it's another one that we get asked all the time you know anybody that's on that that participates and is part of the pass programs they always want to know why we won't hop in and it's there's not like a hard answer this is the exact reason but we do what we do already very well we feel like we're always trying to do it better having a a multi-hill pass i don't want to say it does a disservice to our current pass holders and and everything that they get out of cascade but I, i everybody's seen the pictures and the videos of you know what some of these bluebird powder days can be like on a conglomerate pass or multi-mountain pass and although i understand the reasoning behind it and i we understand that we're trying to get people in affordable means and, and break down that barrier to enter the sport i don't think that's the experience that we're looking to give them if you know what I mean. We want everybody to have the opportunity to experience Cascade, but we don't, I don't think the experience of, you know, half hour or more lift lines on a, on a nice Saturday, or, I don't think that's the experience that we want to give them. We're, we, we struggle, I mean, every year trying to make sure that we're not outpricing a demographic, especially a local demographic, and to gain uh, beginner traffic and and these families, that want to learn how to ski or stay within the sport. And I, I know that the multi-resort passes help break down that barrier to entry for the sport. But I think at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we, we keep that experience valuable at Cascade. We don't we don't want to oversaturate that. Um, I think we have enough tools at our disposal at Cascade that we can make that happen and, and get those families and beginners and first-timers into the sport. Uh, without offering that kind of a pass. I think it works really well for the people it works really well for. I can't I can't say it's not, obviously it's a business model that has done well for various resorts in the ski industry. And then, I mean, other industries as well have the same type of business model. The way Cascade is positioned and how we have uh, strategized using capacity to increase the quality and the high level of experience and the value to the people that are here, I think it kind of goes against what we've been working towards since we uh, implemented capacities, for sure. And prior to that, you know, we were obviously trying to give everybody a quality experience and add value to their day here. Since then, we've seen what limiting crown numbers can do to really increase that value for the customers and, and to forecast and plan for our operations.
1: Yeah, COVID was an interesting time and a lot of, Sort of necessary evils came out of that period, but a lot of really good ideas that folks kept came out of that period as well. And Cascade and your team there kept the lift ticket limits, you know, probably not as as severe as, as they were during COVID, but, but you had started limiting lift tickets during COVID, decided to keep them post-COVID. What made you decide to stick with that, Matt? And how have you adjusted to a post-COVID reality where we don't have to space people on the chairlifts and things like that anymore?
0: Yeah, we, everybody learned, you know, various, various things through COVID that they probably kept. And that was, you know, there's various things that we learned as well. And that was probably the single most influential thing to us is at the end of the day, uh, our skier retention from having limited capacities and and limited lift lines, and just having a, like I keep mentioning, a higher value experience when they're here, uh, the experience that they were getting and not dealing with Overcrowding in buildings and overcrowding in lift lines, we saw a higher retention rate, beginners that turned into intermediates within one season, and families that would come and they'd be happy to be long-term customers at Cascade after their first visit because of how easy it was for them to transition through F&B facilities, rentals, just having capacity in, in restrooms and not being overcrowded and waiting in line for restrooms or water fountains that type of thing along with the lift lines the skier terrain was not overcrowded the beginner terrain was not overcrowded we saw such a an improvement in the skier retention and conversion of the first timers to beginners and then to intermediates and people that were willing to invest in season passes all of a sudden and buy their own equipment and just such a, a high value experience by not being overcrowded that we said we, we can't look back to what we used to do and you know if we do start increasing numbers which we're not we're not dialed back to where we were during COVID years um, but we're not far from that either um, we're, we're trying to like I said the, the customer facing amenities that we're taking care of this summer you know we dedicated it to the heavens it's all about reducing bottlenecks. At the end of the day, the more people we can fit in here in a reasonable, responsible way, that our bottom line is healthier. And, you know, maybe we can move out east of that expansion sooner. So we're not limiting ourselves. We're trying not to limit ourselves, but we want to make sure that we're doing it responsibly. We want everybody to have a really high quality experience when they're here. But on, I mean, on the opposite side of that, you have to kind of limit that with ticket prices and pass prices. Our current season pass setup is there There are no restrictions. There's no blackouts. If you're going with that high level pass that includes weekends and all your weekdays that you can come whenever we want or whenever you want regardless of where we're at for capacity. So it's it's the day ticket purchasers that are the ones that are having issues because of our capacities and we reach them on most weekends. So we're trying to resolve that issue by curing the bottlenecks and the amenity issues and parking obviously like, like I talked about and trying to make sure we can get as many people in here as possible but give them a quality experience as well.
1: So it's a really thoughtful answer Matt and Obviously, it's something that your team was done with a lot of consideration. There is one really cool upside to these multi-mountain passes. And one of the one of them is that you can add on, if you're an indie pass partner, your pass holders can add on an indie pass at a discounted rate. One of the things I really like about skiing in the Midwest, and I grew up skiing in Michigan, is that it's super easy to get around because you don't have that mountainous terrain that you're dealing with in a lot of other areas. And, and obviously, yes, you have snow, but in general, it's fairly flat roads and and fairly easy to navigate. Curious if you hear from any of your pass holders who would maybe want to add that Indy Pass on so they could take a run up to Lutzen or Granite Peak or up to the UP and, or, or maybe even out west or out to New England. Or it, if you don't hear that from them that they want Cascade to join, I'm, I'm curious if if a number of your pass holders, if you see that they're buying the indie pass as sort of a supplemental pass for when they want to venture outward,
0: yeah, we we do see it. We not in very high numbers, but we do definitely get responses to, and feedback about hopping on and allowing a couple of days here, a couple of days there, in addition to the pass they already own and have purchased at Cascade. But and maybe we need to do more research on it because it, it. I'm not going to say it's never going to be a possibility. But the way we currently are set up, I don't know how that would work with our capacities in place, or if we—if that would be, you know, a season pass that would be included just like a normal season pass here, where there are no restrictions, they can come on whenever they want, regardless of capacities. We're treading very lightly and carefully there because we're trying to make sure we maintain that quality like we did before. And I think anybody that has had that feedback for us especially if they are a Cascade pass holder already. It's really easy for us to explain the benefits of or how we're doing it now. But moving forward, I, like I said, I'm not going to say there's not an opportunity there. And we just need to make sure every season we're revisiting that and seeing if there's a way to make Cascade work.
1: All right, Matt. Well, with that, I will let you go. I really appreciate your time today. So many exciting things happening at Cascade. I really hope I get a chance to come out there, make some turns with you, see the place for myself sometime soon. In the meantime, good luck getting ready with the season. And I won't take any more of your time because I know how much you have to do between now and November. So thank you very much for your time today, Matt. I really enjoyed that.
0: Thank you, sir. Anytime you want to come out, let me know.
1: That's Matt Voss, General Manager of Cascade Mountain, Wisconsin. I appreciate you, Matt. Thank you so much for that. And thank you all for listening. Hang tight, Midwest. I've got two more podcasts coming your way in quick succession with the leaders of Luton, Minnesota, and Snow River, Michigan. Then we'll hit Buck Hill, Minnesota in the new year. If you just found the podcast with this episode, please go ahead and dig around in the archive where you will find a ton of Midwest pods, including EPs focused on the leaders of Whitecap, Granite Peak, Trollhagen. Little Switzerland, Paul Bunyan, for the UP skiers among you, Mount Bohemia. There's a bunch more Michigan in there as well. Caberfae, Nubs Knob, Point Mountain, the Highlands. The very best way to get new episodes the moment they are live is to pop over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers do receive podcasts seven days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon.
0: The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.